I'm George Lavender, one of the producers of Making Contact. Thanks for listening to this podcast. We release a show about a different issue every week, but you can join the conversations happening right now on the Making Contact Facebook page and on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. Thanks a lot. Here's the show. I raise this glass for the ones who die meaninglessly and the newborns who get fed intravenously. Somebody's mama caught a job and a welfare fraud case. When she breathes, she swear it feel like plastic wrap around her face. Lights turned off, this the third month the rent is late. Thoughts of being homeless, crying to you hyperventilate. Despair permeates the air and sets in her hair. The kids play with that one toy they learned how to share. Coming home don't ever seem to be a celebration. Bills stay piled up on the coffee table like they decoration. Heaping spoons of peanut butter, big ass glass of water, make the hunger subside. Save the real food for your daughter. You feel like swinging haymakers at a moving truck. You feel like laughing so it seems like you don't give a fuck. You feel like getting so high you smoke the whole damn crop. You feel like crying, but you think that you might never stop. Homes with no heat stiffing your joints like arthritis. If this was fiction, it'd be easier to write this. Some folks try to front like they so above you. They tear this motherfucker up if they really loved you. That's rapper and grassroots organizer Boots Riley, the MC for the rap group The Coup. His recent book is titled Tell Homeland Security, We Are the Bomb. In August 2015, Riley appeared at Politics and Prose Bookstore in Washington, D.C., where he was interviewed by author and Edge of Sports blogger Dave Zirin. This week on Making Contact, we bring you some of that conversation. So, hello, Boots. What's up? So, here's a question for you right off. Um, much to my surprise, the, the Washington Post noticed that we were doing this event tonight and published a notice about it. Uh, they had us right up there, right underneath uh, Hootie and the Blowfish, which is <laughs> kind of interesting. Yeah, we made it. Yeah, we made it. <laughs> and th- their description of you was, see uh, Boots Riley, a ra- this is a quote, a rap artist who dabbles in activism. Um, I wanted to give you a chance to rewrite that description. Like if you were playing editor at the Washington Post, uh, how would you describe yourself? Um, A former organizer who has fooled everybody into thinking he's an artist. Or fooled everybody uh, into thinking only a few of us are artists. Because the truth is we all have that ability. And... um, I didn't, I wasn't good at what I was doing and I made myself get good at what I was doing for a purpose. Now I read somewhere that you wanted to be Prince. So, so what happened? <laughs> so yeah, I, uh, when, when I was like uh, 12, that was my main goal was to be like Prince, but to not rehearse or practice guitar or anything like that. I don't know, I want it to be something. And I think that's really what a lot of us, a lot of, what's behind that is that most of us are told, especially when we're kids in some way, that we're not really anything important. But we see the folks on TV, and that's definitely something important. They, They definitely matter. And I think we all want our lives to mean something. And so, 
later on, I became involved in organizing by the time I was 14 or 15. And um, that was part of that same thing. Like I, all of a sudden, I felt like my life meant something. I, w I was part of helping organize what was called the Anti-Racist Farm Workers Union in Central California. And I could see my actions as part of building a movement, part of building a revolutionary movement. And that, that made me forget about wanting to be Prince. Um, and I actually, at the time I sum, I didn't sum it up like that. The time I summed it up as the previous things that I wanted as being very individualistic and uh, you know, a symptom of capitalism. But you know, it really is part of just the same yearning to make our lives matter. Now, I, I know you do a lot more than dabble in activism. For people who don't know, uh, Boots Riley has recently been involved in a, a very intimate fight, one that affects your family, like fighting to defend uh, your cousin, Carlos Riley, who was accused of shooting a police officer in Durham, North Carolina in 2012, and two weeks ago, uh, he was found to be not guilty by a jury. And you were... Um, and, you were extremely vocal about this case. Now, perhaps you could talk about the Carlos Riley story, because sometimes when we hear about these individual stories, it just gives us a much better idea about what's wrong systemically. So yeah, um, my cousin Carlos Riley Jr., he um, was 21 years old at the time. He got pulled over by a plainclothes cop who started assaulting him and told him verbally, I'm going to kill you. But while he was drawing his weapon, he shot himself in the leg. And Carlos took that opportunity to take the gun away from him, uh, push the cop who was now inside his car out of the car and take off. Three hours later, he turned himself in. Um, they charged him with assault on an officer, shooting an officer, and uh, with a robbery of the gun. So he went on trial. And um, the physical evidence and the testimony all corroborated his story. Like the, the DA kept presenting these witnesses like, see, yeah, somebody saw him holding the gun. And basically it was like, yeah, he was holding the gun and he was pointing it away from the cop while he was pushing the cop off of, away from him. And there was all this other physical evidence that didn't support the, the cop's story. And he got found not guilty of all the charges except for one, which was robbery of the gun. Because the judge didn't allow them to consider taking the gun self-defense. So that's, that's up for appeal. But um, the DA from the get-go has tried to get the lawyer thrown off the case. They are probably, for the appeals part, going to get a different court-appointed lawyer on the case just because this one did such a good job. Um, after the not guilty verdicts came in, documents surfaced that showed the DA's office and the police department knew from day one that the cop had shot himself. My cousin's been in jail for almost three years now. He's in jail under federal charges for having the gun. 
he has a, a previous possession of cocaine charge. And so mm. it doesn't matter why you had the gun. Even if you took the gun away from the cop who was trying to kill you with that mm. gun, you have a felony cocaine possession charge. So you are not allowed to do that. Mm. You're supposed to do what the cop says and get no. killed. Now this is Durham, North Carolina. Now, now what school is in Durham, North Carolina, everybody? Yeah, good. Someone said North Carolina Central. See, I was testing. No, it was Duke. But I will say that I, I have interviewed uh, players uh, from the Duke NCAA powerhouse team, and the players at Duke, the black players, have horrible stories about the Durham police, about being drawn upon. Uh, they have a special number to call the coach, Mike Krzyzewski. Every time they're, they're stopped by police, we can tell the police, no, they're actually players, so they can get out of situations like that. Well, a guy supposedly killed himself in the back of a police car with handcuffs on. Mm. Shot himself. That's, that sounds, so I, I ask, I mentioned that because when I've talked to the players at Duke, they talk about the Durham police as being like, particularly bad, particularly brutal, particularly racist. You travel around a lot of places, you talk a lot of places. Do you think that's the case, that different officers in different cities um, are better or worse, or it's safer or less safe, or across the board, is this just dangerous times to run afoul of the police, particularly for black and brown people? Well, here's the thing. Um, a lot of times it's easy to look at these things as personality contests. Like if we just had nicer officers, if we just had a nicer police chief, a less racist one. I mean, this was a black cop that did this, first of all, right? So the answer of getting more black cops obviously is not part of it. I mean, think about Nigeria. It's black people, black cops, and they're all violent and they're brutal, right? So it's the, it's a, the system that makes the cops have to be this way. Racist oppression has a utility. Cops are acting upon that. No matter who you put in those places, they're gonna, they have a function. Right now, the cops have a particular function and that's based on where we are in this system and how, how this system works. So you have to back it up and look at why there's this racist utility. What, how does that work? Now the point is, is that in this system, under capitalism, you must have a certain amount of unemployment for capitalism to exist. You cannot have full employment under capitalism. If you had full employment under capitalism, the boss couldn't fire you. They need an unemployed army of workers to replace the ones that are working so that they can keep wages low. Matter of fact, you'll see Wall Street Journal and other financial uh, publications worrying when the unemployment rate goes too low uh, because that means wages will start going up. So. If there has to be a certain amount of unemployed people for capitalism to work, that means there are a certain amount of unemployed people who need to eat. And what do people do when they need to eat? They don't let themselves starve. They're going to create jobs. And those jobs are going to be uh, often in the illegal economy. And so illegal business, just like legal business, uses violence to regulate itself. If you have a grocery store and someone tries to leave out with a cart full of groceries without paying, 
they're going to be met with the physical force, either from the private security of the supermarket or from the public business security, which is called the police. The police are the physical force that regulates business. You know, um, in the 1920s, if you rob the liquor dude, gangsters come after you. Right now, you rob the liquor dude, the police come after you. Ten years ago in Oakland, California, you rob a weed dude. Uh, if the weed dude is connected, gangsters come after you. Right now, you rob the weed dude, the police come after you. It's all the same thing. It's all the same thing. It's business regulation. Illegal business has to regulate itself. All these building codes and all of that, you know, so, some other building can't just build into here because there are building codes. And those building codes are in the end enforced by a physical force that's called the police. If somebody's selling a key of cocaine, you know, and there's a dispute, they can't go to court and say, Your Honor, I was supposed to buy a whole key of cocaine, and this is clearly 80% baking soda. I demand restitution. They can't go to the zoning commission and say, uh, you know, we're only supposed to have three dope dealers on this block, and it's clearly overcrowded. We need some, to rezone. So what we see in this violence is actually just business regulation is part of capitalism. And in reality, if you look at statistics by the CDC, that violence has gone down by a third since 1950. In 1950, there was more black-on-black -black violence than there is today. Yet they have us saying that that's our main problem right now. Mm. I'll say, right. if folks want what Boots just said in a three-minute song form, uh, your parents' cocaine with backing kazoo. <laughs> Very good. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, and so you have this situation in which they allow us to look at this, the, the violence and the, the quote-unquote crime, because it's kind of arbitrary what's crime and what's not. Um, they have us looking at the violence and the crime as an outgrowth of people's mentality. And an out, they, they make us look at it as an outgrowth of our culture. Like, you know, what songs are people that are listening to that are making them shoot each other? And, you know, what are the ways that people walk down the street that cause them to be violent? Things like that. And even nonprofits get into this game, right? Uh, so nonprofits will be like, okay, we're going to stop the violence, you know, because we know violence comes from the fact that people don't know how to wear the right tie to get a job interview. And we know that violence comes from the fact that people don't have uh, the right problem-solving skills. They need to learn how to balance their checkbooks, and this will get them out of that. And a lot of the folks in those organizations understand that this is bullshit. But they have radical politics, they want a job, and they want something that seems like it, that at least says it's about social justice. So it's out there putting out the same idea that poverty comes from the bad decisions that folks have made. And the easiest thing to do, how, how do you paint that picture, right? How is that idea easiest, easier sold? That idea is easier sold by putting all of that on the other, right? So you have, you know, white working class that are poor that look at what's happening with black folks and say, 
uh, see, yeah, they're making those, you know, they're listening to that music. They're, they're, that's why they don't have jobs. And this is somebody might be unemployed themselves, but they end up identifying with the system. And that's how racism has a utility. So um, there's been a license given to the police based on this idea of what creates poverty and what creates violence. And that license is not only given to the police by you know, the right-wing media and Fox News, it's given by uh, many liberals who have said that this is the answer, that, that, that we gotta teach people the right way to be, how to stop being savage. Police themselves, let's say you're a cop. Besides just wanting a paycheck, someone became a cop saying, hey, I don't like this crime on the street. Somehow that's the most important thing to them. They don't like the crime on the street. They want to stop what's happening. So instead of understanding how the system works and understanding that that's actually a natural outgrowth of capitalism, they've decided that crime is a decision mm -hmm. by the individual or is created by this culture that folks have. So their enemy often are the people in the community themselves. Mm -hmm. So you can be a black cop and, ha and most of them have that idea. And which is why that happened with my cousin with a black mm -hmm. cop. You're listening to Making Contact. Because of generous support from listeners like you, this show is distributed for free to radio stations in the U.S., Canada, Australia, and South Africa. To find out how to support us, download shows, or get our podcasts, go to radioproject.org. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. Now, back to more of Boots Riley being interviewed by Dave Zirin in August 2015. There is a movement now, Black Lives Matter. You were just in Ferguson uh, performing at the one-year anniversary of the killing of Michael Brown by Officer Darren Wilson. What are you seeing in this movement? Does it address some of the issues that you've already talked about tonight? And what did you see in Ferguson? Um, so I, I'm really inspired by the fact that there are so many movements popping up all over the place. It's clear that everybody wants to figure out a way to change these things and people are ready to get involved and come and show their solidarity. This last year with the Black Lives Matter movement, a few years ago with Occupy, there are things popping up all over the world where folks are taken to the streets and showing that they're fed up. I think where it's at and what I get from people that I'm talking to in it is there's a mixture of excitement and the question that haunts everybody that's involved in a movement. Well, what do we do with this? How does this work, right? How do we actually make this affect some sort of change? And um, that gets asked to people that are organizing all the time and often the answer is, I don't know. Or it's something, but the real answer inside is, I don't know. And because a lot of our movements have been based on just that. Let's get a lot of people into the streets in one way or another, and let's show that we're fed up. And then we don't really have a way to go from there because 
I think that the, the left since the 60s has been about that, has been about showing that we're fed up, coming out, showing up at demonstrations. But I think that, you know, for the 40, 50 years before the 60s, that's not what the left and radical movements had been about. The left has been all about showing, has all been about spectacle for so long that that's why many people don't join it. Because they say, okay, well, I see you're doing the marches. I'm actually, I actually agree with what you're saying, but I don't know if it will do anything. And it hasn't always been this way. In the 20s and 30s in the United States, there was a mass militant radical labor movement. In the Midwest, people were occupying factories and getting victories with that. Even in, in Utah, Colorado, Alabama, places like that, there were militant mining strikes. In, in Alabama, uh, people took up arms against the corporate thugs that were coming to stop them from having their strike. According to the documentary Seeing Red, there were one million card-carrying communists in the United States in the 20s and 30s. You had a somewhat unrelated bonus march happening in the 20s where uh, veterans marched to the White House and some of them armed and they were met by the army. All of this whole trajectory and along with revolutions happening around the world at the time made the US ruling class scared that there might be able to be an actual viable revolutionary movement growing. Not that that could have happened right then, but that it was growing. Um, and that's where things like the New Deal came along, right? It didn't come because people were like, we gotta get FDR elected and then we can get our radical ideas done, he can open up the door. No, they were scared that there was gonna be a radical movement with the ability to shut down industry. That's where the New Deal came from. It was very powerful. During World War II, the communists decided to have a united front against fascism with the US, meaning that in order to allow the US to help defeat Hitler, they would not confront the US on their own soil anymore. So they went underground for years, which left it open to when the 50s came along, the McCarthy era, uh, House and American Activities Committee was able to say, hey, look at that dude right there, point at revolutionaries and say, look, they've been lying to you. They haven't been telling you who they are. And this was true. They hadn't been. Whereas maybe 20 years before, if they did that, people would have said, I know, because uh, I've been working with them on this other thing, right? But at that point, revolutionaries were underground. And the House and American Activities Committee was, were able to attack people. And that combined with revelations of atrocities from Stalin in the 50s made the largest revolutionary grouping in the United States break up into all these little pieces that became the new left. That, that became the new left of the 60s. And of course, other things grew out of that. But the new left did something very different from the time immediately preceding it, and which was to say, of that were revolutionaries, right? They were out with it. But what they also did was move away from organizing around those same material issues. They weren't organizing labor anymore. They were moving people to cities and focusing on students. And that focus on cities and students necessitated a different kind of organizing based on spectacle, based on let's get a bunch of people in the street, let's do this dramatic thing, let's bring attention to this thing. 
And this was very different than what it had been 40 years before, because before that, a demonstration was just that. Look how many people we have to shut down your industry. It was a show of force. It wasn't the be-all, end-all. In the 60s, getting into the street became the be-all, end-all. And of course, I'm essentializing broadly. There's definitely really great exceptions to this. There was the Detroit Revolutionary Union Movement, things like that. But for the most part, actual class struggle on the job site was left alone by radicals. And what we had since then is a style of organizing that does not have the teeth to deliver on the demonstration that we're actually saying that we're doing. A demonstration of power, but we're not organizing around what we know is our power. Now, if you are a radical, then you know that our main power comes at the main contradiction of capitalism. And that main contradiction of capitalism has to do with the exploitation of labor. And that's where our power is, is the fact that we create profit. So it comes to a point where we have a lot of people frustrated about the way the police are working, but we don't have any power to actually affect it. Mm -hmm. And what ends up happening is we say, get your voice into the street. That's what we need to do. And that's really selling a fantasy, selling a falsehood about how the system works. We know that this system doesn't work by the fact that a lot of people tell, say that they're upset about something and things change for the better. The way that we affect change is by making the folks in power make that change by giving them no choice. We give them either you make these changes that may give you less profit or you make no profit because we've shut down this part of your industry. We've shut down that part of your industry. We are not there at that level to do that right now realistically because we haven't been working in those places, in those fields for a long time, at least radicals haven't. Well, it would be um, a sin if I didn't ask you a couple of music questions. Let's start with The Atlantic, which just put out this article that was very Atlantic. <laughs> and I mean that in the worst, most insulting possible way. Um, and it was called, what, Why Is There No More Political Hip Hop? Was the name of the article. And beyond that, you were just at Ferguson you know, doing a concert. Obviously, you're, you're an artist. Um, of renown, so I just want to ask, what, what is the state of the art in your mind? Well, I think that art grows out of movements. I, I come out of a movement, and that movement was pretty small, so there's only one coup group, right? There could be a lot more. I, I think that music grows out of the movement that's around. Uh, the biggest movement right now, obviously, is the movement for people to survive individualistically, it's capitalism. And so people are going to make music about what's around them. If we want to have more music that's talking about actual social change and struggling against the system, we're going to have to be involved in struggling against the system more, right? Like when, when people see Jay-Z and they love his lyrics, it's not that they think that they're gonna be as rich as him. A few people may hope that, but they see somebody that doesn't have to worry about paying the bills next week. They don't have to worry about maybe being kicked out of their house. And that sounds a lot like freedom to them, right? And we haven't connected radical struggles 
to people's actual way that they survive. We haven't been talking about these things that people need in a radical way, in a way that is also tied with transforming society. So it's our fault that Jay-Z is the closest thing to freedom that they've seen. It's our fault for leaving certain kinds of struggles behind, because that's what these rappers are talking about. They're talking about, this is how you survive. Why aren't these movements talking about that? We want to make more, quote unquote, conscious music. We got to have a real movement dealing with this stuff. And the artists will come afterward. Round of applause. Absolutely. That was Boots Riley being interviewed by Dave Zirin in August 2015. Special thanks to Politics and Prose Bookstore in Washington, D.C. for use of that recording. And that's it for this edition of Making Contact. To get our podcast, check out our website, radioproject.org. That's also where you can download past shows and make a difference by supporting our work. Like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. I'm Andrew Stelzer. Thanks for listening to Making Contact.